So my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm Becky's favorite pastor. That's great. If I wasn't, that'd be a problem. Uh, so glad you could make it this morning. I hope your Christmas is good. Uh, so my oldest daughter, Leah, who is 16, she had influenza and strep at the same time, double shot over Christmas. So that mean, meant that Leah and I got to spend Christmas alone together. And while well, like uh, the rest of our family was like off uh, doing Christmas travels. So, so that meant that we got to go to the only restaurant that was open in Dubuque on Christmas, because we're not going to eat peanut butter and jelly and things like that on Christmas. So we went to the only restaurant that was open, which was the Great Dragon over by Target. And it was like that scene in the Santa Claus where they're at Denny's and like there was just a lot of single dads with their kids there. And it was just, I don't know, it was just the be- actually the best Christmas ever. It was just really great. So, anyway, uh, Leah survived and everything. So it was good. That was good too. Um, so just a little bit about me. So my wife is Becky, who was just up here. Uh, we have three daughters, one in high school, two in middle school. Uh, I grew up on a farm in western Wisconsin, and we've lived here in Dubuque for about seven years. So thanks for joining us this morning on New Year's Day. Uh, so if this is your first time here, uh, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John uh, this um, this last semester, you know, which is in the New Testament. So the Gospel of John documents the life of Jesus and the purpose of why it was originally written was so that second generation Christians could clearly see that the, the way that your life is transformed isn't by riding the coattails of your parents' faith. You know, like according to John, the way that your life and your heart are transformed is by encountering Jesus himself and believing in him. That's how your heart and life are transformed. So with that in mind, um, let's read our passage this morning, and then we'll get into the rest. So, so we're, this morning we're in chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. It'll be up on the screen. Just turn on my microphone. All right, so chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, and just time out for a second. Like when Jesus, everything that Jesus says is... Uh, valuable, important, and profitable. But when he says that phrase right there, like, very truly, I say to you, that's code for, you need to listen up, okay? So, and as a reader, maybe you should bust out your highlighter and start underlining and all that kind of stuff. So, um, some old school translations say, verily, verily, like, if that's what you, something, a translation that you remember um, growing up. So, typically, when Jesus says this phrase, he's about to tell us something that's really important about salvation, about and about who he is. So, verse 1, very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter by the sheep pen, by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of, his, all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was, he was telling them. Verse 7, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, there's that phrase again, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, he emphasizes again. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the, sh- is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares, cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And what he's talking about there is just that, oh, there's going to be people who are not Israelites who are going to be a part of like God's people. It's like That was radical for them to hear. It's like, talking about us here. Okay. Verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So first, I'm going to explain the passage a little bit. Then I'm going to focus in on um, three big ideas. And those are, Jesus is our safety and protection. Jesus is our leader and provider. And Jesus declares us valuable and worth sacrificing for He's our safety and protection. He's our leader and provider. And he declares us valuable and worth sacrificing for. Let's pray. So God, um, we can't see you. We don't have the power within us um, to see you as the good shepherd. And we can't see your goodness without your empowerment. So we just ask you collectively that we'll just really see that in this passage in what you're saying. And I pray that you'll just Empower us to see the goodness and the relevancy of it and to see how you are ultimately the source of all the good news that's in here. Yeah, so we really need you for that and we're desperate for you with that. Yeah. Amen. All right. So this passage is on the heels of what Alex Reed preached about a couple weeks ago, if you were here for that. So in that passage, which was right before this, so there was a man who was born blind um, and he was miraculously healed by Jesus. But the Pharisees, they were just really bent out of shape about it. And the healing of that man's physical blindness was used as a metaphor for the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. Because according to Alex's passage a couple weeks ago, spiritual blindness is the real problem, and our spiritual blindness is only, heal, only healed by coming to Jesus in faith to be changed by him. And today's passage uh, comes immediately after that exchange in Alex's passage. So Jesus here is still talking to the Pharisees. And who are the Pharisees? They were the, the religious leaders of the day. So if you have the day in Israel right there. So if you were just a regular Jewish kid, you had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Um, but if you were a Pharisee, you had the entire Old Testament memorized. So like that first two-thirds of your Bible right there, which are the Old Testament, you have that entire thing memorized. Like, so that's why in other parts of the gospel, like the Pharisees tend to get like flaming white hot mad when Jesus says things to them like, haven't you read? And I, I remember being younger, like reading that, like, why are they getting so mad about that? I mean, that's a little offensive, but why are they getting that offended? And that's because like, uh, like we haven't just read it. We haven't memorized, like, who does this guy think he is? But the problem with the Pharisees, as Alex showed us a couple weeks ago, is that even though they have all this killer head knowledge, 
Their hearts and their minds were spiritually blind because they refused to come to Jesus and be transformed by him. Which was super ironic because everything that they had committed to memory like ultimately pointed to Jesus. So fast forward to our passage this morning. So Jesus is still more or less interacting with the Pharisees about their spiritual blindness. He doesn't use that phraseology right there in this passage, but that's the undercurrent of what he's talking about in John 10. And to further his point about it, Jesus starts talking about sheep and shepherds. And shepherding was a significant occupational profession at that time with the Jewish people. So this wasn't some kind of like niche uh, analogy that he's making here, out of the blue kind of niche analogy that he's making. So like I said, I grew up on a farm. And some of you might be like, Aaron, you don't strike me as a farm kid. (laughs) You think? Uh, when I was 17, I told my dad, like, Dad, I'm not going to take over the farm. And my dad was like, that's totally fine. Like, <laughs> I can tell it's not your thing. And I was like, yeah, it's not my thing. You know what is my thing? Like, sitting in the house and watching Empire Strikes Back. That's my thing right there. So uh, I've come a long way, hopefully, since then. So, uh, so we had cattle and crops. Uh, but before I was born, we also had sheep. And... Um, I remember asking my dad once, like, Dad, like, why'd you get rid of this sheep? And he's like, well, I wanted my back to stop hurting. That's why. You know, and I was like, seems like a good reason. So I told my mom at Christmas, and um, uh, this is after Leah, like, came from her deathbed and everything. So, um, so we went to my mom's house, and, uh, and I told her I was preaching on this, uh, this passage in the Bible about, like, how Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. And I was asking my mom, like, do you remember anything about what dad said about, like, what it was like working with the sheep and being a sheep farmer? And she was like, not really. Uh, she's like, I just remember your dad saying a lot of stuff about, like, how it was just re- they were just really unpleasant to work with. And I don't remember a lot about what my dad said about being a sheep farmer, but I just re- the things I do remember him saying about it, he just said a lot of the same things that he told um, that apparently he told my mom too. So uh, yeah, I remember my dad saying like they were just really jumpy about everything. They get their heads stuck in stuff, and like and like he'd often just look at them and just be like, "What's wrong with you?" You know. So along those lines, the uh, author and theologian Philip Keller, not Timothy Keller, Philip Keller has this little book called A Shepherd Looks, killer title, I know. So, and it's about Psalm 23, and in it he describes a danger that is unique to sheep. So shepherds call it being cast down or simply cast. So it's basically when a sheep falls and it can't get up, okay? So he writes the following. He says, Even the largest, fattest, strongest, and sometimes healthiest sheep can become cast and can be a casualty. The way it happens is this. A heavy, fat, or long-fleeced sheep, which is really code for, like, really woolly, will lie down and comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side to stretch out or relax. Suddenly, the center of its gravity, uh, of its body, shifts so that it turns on its back far enough so that the feet can no longer touch the ground. It may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. Frequently, this only makes things worse. It rolls over even further. Now it is quite impossible for it to regain its feet. And I remember reading that last week, and I'm like, I don't remember my old man telling me about that. But if that did happen at least once in a while, no wonder he sent them all to the stock yards. Like, ain't nobody got time for that. 
So the author continues to say the following about, the, about sheep. Among the animal kingdom, sheep seem to have come out on the short end. From all accounts, they are of limited intelligence. When it comes to finding food, they are definitely uncreative. As creatures of habit, they will often follow paths through desolate places, even though not far away is excellent forage. Sheep are also given to listless wandering. They are definitely at the lower end of the intelligence scale, which is, this guy's really hating on sheep right here. There are even accounts of them walking into open fires. That's what he actually says here. <laughs> Shepherds confirm that they are timid and stubborn. They can be frightened by the most ridiculous things, though at other times they can... But nothing can move them. They're absolutely defenseless. There is no way a sheep can defend itself. Like, I was reading last week about uh, this philosophy professor, and he, his contention was that the existence and proliferation of sheep combined with their helplessness and their low birth rates is actually an argument against macroevolution because there's no way a sheep is, like, uh, winning any survival of the fittest. <laughs> Uh, I am not smart enough to know if sheep are an evidence of anything, okay? But like, what I do know is that in this passage, Jesus likens us to sheep. And that's notable because this isn't the first time in Scripture that God likens us to sheep. So, For example, in Psalm 100, we read, It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people the sheep of his pasture. And Isaiah 53, we read, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're just all wandering around and into open fires, apparently. And not only does Jesus liken us to sheep, Jesus likens himself as a shepherd. And not just, not just a shepherd, but a good shepherd. And not just a good shepherd, but the good shepherd. And that's significant because this isn't the first time in Scripture that God refers to himself as the good shepherd. In the Old Testament, God is often depicted as the true shepherd, which is often contrasted with unfaithful shepherds that will eventually be judged by him, such as Isaiah 40, Ezekiel 34, if you ever want to look those up. And shepherding was an intimate occupation in biblical times, so there weren't any commercial sheep farms. So in those times, shepherds knew all of their sheep. That's why in verse 3, he says he calls them, he calls his own by name. That's why we see a frequent repetition in the passage of they listen to his voice. They know his voice. And when he says that, that like he knows his voice kind of language and that repetition there, he's not saying that Christians need to like figure out like how to hear God's voice in this mystical way. Like, no, he's just saying that sheep have a familiarity with the shepherd and vice versa. Familiarity is what characterizes the sheep-shepherd relationship. You know, it's like, you know, we had cattle on the farm, so it's just like, I mean... Raising cattle is way different than like like raising sheep, you know. But like, there's just some similarities for sure because for obvious reasons. But so my dad would be out there like several times a day with the cattle and everything. And so like when he went out there, there was just like whatever, you know. He's just like one of us, you know. And then like, but like me, when I would stop watching Empire Strikes Back, I would go out there, and then I'd just go in there so behind my dad, and they would just be like. 
Oh, the cows were like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Like they were just screwing around and everything. And they were just eyeing me. Like, you know, I was just like, there's a familiarity. That's what they're getting at in this passage. There's a familiarity with the sheep and the shepherd. And furthermore, there's a difference between Eastern shepherds and Western shepherds. So Western shepherds tend to drive the sheep, and they often have stuff like sheep dogs, you know, just like in those Hallmark movies. But Eastern shepherds lead the sheep. That's why in verse 3, he says he leads them out. Verse 4, he goes on ahead of them. They follow him. There's a repetition of the sheep following him. That's why in the often quoted, like, Psalm 23, like, there's no mention of, like, driving the sheep and I got my dog there. It's like, no, he says, like, he leads me beside quiet waters and he guides me along the right paths and he makes me lie down in green pastures. Like, that kind of language describes active shepherding as opposed to, like, I'm just going to turn my dog loose and just stare at my phone the whole time. Like, there's an active leadership by the shepherd and an active follower, followership by the sheep because the shepherd is actively leading the wayward, helpless sheep to the right pastures and to the right paths and to the right quiet waters because the shepherd is the protector and the provider and the source of safety for the sheep. And Jesus contrasts his shepherding with thieves and robbers and wolves whose intention is to steal and kill and destroy the sheep. And if context is our friend as we read the Bible, which it always is, then we can see that the Pharisees should have been listening carefully to Jesus and say this and been like, wait, are you talking about us? But let's notice that the emphasis and the focus of Jesus' words in this passage aren't on how bad the thieves are or how terrible the robbers are or how terrifying the wolves are. Like, no. The emphasis in this passage is how good the good shepherd is. That's where the emphasis is. It's on how good the good shepherd is. So, Like I said, the three big things we're going to focus on is Jesus is our safety and protection. He's our leader and a provider, and he declares us valuable and worth sacrificing for. The first one, so Jesus is our safety and protection. He's our safety and protection. So just so you know, the, the first two points here, like there's kind of, they're kind of like a Venn diagram. There's some overlap, but there's some distinction. But. So one part of this passage that I didn't talk about yet uh, that I wanted to say for this part was uh, verse 7, where Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the gate. Which, growing up on, from somebody who grew up on a farm, that is incredibly unspectacular. Cool. Like that thing you buy at Farm and Fleet. <laughs> like that is, okay, whatever until we understand more about the Eastern shepherding that Jesus is talking about. There was, so there was a famous Old Testament scholar from Scotland in the late 1800s named Sir George Adam Smith. That's a Scottish name right there. So Sir George Adam Smith, he said the following. He said, I was traveling one day with a guide in the Middle East and came across a shepherd with his sheep. I fell into conversation with him. I'm not going to do this in a Scottish accent. The man showed me the fold into which the sheep were led at night. It consisted of four walls and a way in. I said to him, that is where they go at night? Yes, said the shepherd. And when they are in there, they are perfectly safe. 
but there is no gate, said Sir George. I am the gate, said the shepherd. This shepherd was not a Christian man, but he, and he was not speaking in the language of the New Testament. He was speaking from the Arab shepherd's point of view. Sir George looked at him and said, What do you mean by you are the gate? The shepherd replied, When the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie in the open space. And no sheep ever goes out but across my body. And no wolf ever comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the gate. So Jesus says, when you, are, when you enter his sheepfold, you have to go through him. If you try to leave, you go through him. If anyone tries to come in, they have to go through him. And that's because Jesus says, I am the gate. I am your safety and protection. And in verse 9, he says, those who enter through him will be saved, which is the language of salvation in the New Testament. Coming to him and trusting him as your good shepherd is the only way to be eternally safe. Jesus, it's like Jesus is saying, all those other shepherds out there that you're trusting for safety and protection, they only come to rob and kill and destroy. But me, I give life in fullness because with me, you're safe both now and eternally. There's no expiration date on my safety and protection for you. And what's the qualification to obtain all that? Is it to be a brilliant sheep? Is it to be a good-looking sheep, a well-put-together sheep, a perfectly well-behaved sheep, a successful sheep, like a useful sheep? No. The qualification is simply to be a sheep who follows the shepherd. Which leads us to point number two. Jesus is our leader and our provider. He's our leader and provider. So this is what, this is much of what Jesus means when he says that he's the good shepherd. And to be sure, like that good shepherd language um, in verses 11 through 18, um, like Jesus couches that language in themes of sacrifice, which we'll get to the next point. But throughout this uh, passage, we see leader and provider language throughout. Verse 3, he leads them out. Verse 4, he goes on ahead of them. Like verse 9, they find pasture, which is connected to verse 10 and the fullness of life that the shepherd provides. This is all part of what it means to be the good shepherd. And this might be more information than what you're interested in, but like when it comes to the mechanics of preparing a sermon, um, something a preacher always needs to ask is, how is our brokenness and sinfulness being addressed in this passage? You know, sometimes preachers call that the fallen condition focus. So, so one of the ways that we see our brokenness and our sinfulness being addressed in this passage is when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, which at the very least implies that we often want someone else to be our good shepherd. Like the propensity of our heart is that we are in a constant, relentless search for someone or something to lead us to pastures that will never truly satisfy and give us life. Like Sometimes that comes in the form of 
us wanting someone else to be something for us that only God can be for us. Like we want them to be our ultimate safety and protection and provision and to give us those things. Like we want someone else to be the gate to protect us from what's coming into the fold. But sometimes it's not in the form of wanting someone else to be our good shepherd. Sometimes we want ourselves to be our own good shepherd. Um, and along those lines, uh, since it's January 1st, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit how this relates to New Year's resolutions. Uh, there is obviously nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. There's obviously nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with uh, self-reflection and altering the altering of habits and the incorporation of goals. Like, of course not. But I will say that from a gospel perspective, Resolutions can often veer into what, the, what could be called the gospel of self-improvement. And that can sometimes come in the form of social media platforms that more or less invite you to come to them and be transformed by them so that you can have safety and provision and life in its fullness. And, and those promises are often at odds with Jesus being our good shepherd and him being our safety and protection and provision. And lest you think that I am only referring to women with this, this is, this is true for men as well. Like young men and guys going through middle-aged stuff who are often struggling with new insecurities and just the awakening of long dormant regrets and things like that. Like often those guys like gravitate towards voices like Rogan and Jordan Peterson, partially because they often have an voices like that often have an emphasis on this relentless self-improvement. Like working hard, challenging yourself, never giving up, grinding your way through life until you win. You set goals that no one else does, and you fix your eyes on the future version of yourself, and like there where you are going to be tougher and harder and more successful and more complete, and that all comes through relentless self-improvement. And guys like that are more or less saying, you are your own good shepherd. Like, there are voices out there that will promise you life in its fullness, especially around this time of year. But the bottom line is this. Like, any change or resolution you make in your life that isn't centered on Jesus being your good shepherd isn't going to lead to safety and provision and protection. Lastly, point number three. Like we see in this passage that Jesus declares us valuable and worth sacrificing for. So, um, like I mentioned before, um, we are often referred to as sheep in the Bible because of our sinfulness and our fearfulness and our sinful, sinfully wayward nature, and that's all true. But when, often when the sheep analogy is used, like for us, um, what often gets missed is that it also implies that we are valuable. It also implies that we are valuable. So Israel's economy, that was based on a fixed piece of land, and there was no stock market or 401ks. Like you, What you physically had is what you had. And what do shepherds have? They have their sheep. The bulk of their life savings is in, in this little flock that they have. So sheep weren't just dumb animals that walk into fires. Like No, they were valuable. 
Some were used for food, some were used for sacrifice, most were used for wool, and that was extremely valuable. Why do you think there are thieves and robbers like in this passage? There, there's thieves and robbers because something valuable is being stolen. Thieves and robbers don't typically waste their time unless they're stealing something that's actually valuable. You take a sheep and extrapolate that out and it, that pretty accurately describes like who we are, wayward and sinful to our core, but infinitely valuable to the good shepherd. Verses 11 through 18 talk about the sacrifice of the good shepherd for his wayward but valuable sheep. Other passages in the Bible talk about Jesus dying because of his justice and holiness and how God's glory is displayed about what, by what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And that is all 100% true. Also, this, we should notice that this passage presses down on his sacrifice being rooted in his love and care for us. In other words, your sin is so bad that the good shepherd had to die. But like You are so infinitely loved and so infinitely valuable that the good shepherd was happy to die for you. That's the gospel, and that's what we remember when we take communion. When we take communion, the bread symbolizes his body, and the drink symbolizes his blood, and those were broken and shed for you. The body and blood of the good shepherd were broken and shed for you. So there's two communion stations in the back. Um, the worship team is going to be playing three songs. Like You can go back on your own and take communion anytime during those three songs that you're ready. You take the bread, you dip it in the juice. Like, if you aren't a follower of the Good Shepherd, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion so it's not just some kind of religious ritual that you're just like going through the motions with. But if you're ready to respond to Him as your forgiver and as your leader, and you want to surrender to Him as, as your Good Shepherd, then just pray and surrender to Him and then go take communion. And let's also remember that we see in this passage that. He's not just a shepherd, he's the good shepherd. Like as Dane Ortland often says, like his goodness can't be overstated. That's why in verse 14 he can say things like, I know my sheep. I know all the things you've done. I know all the things you will do. But because of his great love, verse 15, he lays down his life. He didn't just risk his life, he laid down his life for his infinitely valuable sheep. The hired hand, he's only in it for the money, but not Jesus. He's our good shepherd, and you should come to him and respond to him. Let's pray. So God, we're thankful that like you depict yourself as a good shepherd and as the gate and our safety and our protection and our provider. And um, we just can't thank you enough for that. Yeah, we're thankful that that's who you are. And yeah, we pray that like, um, just like I was talking to you earlier about just like you empowering us to just individually and collectively because we're a church together um, to just really see you, like see your goodness and to recognize your goodness and to like move our hearts and minds towards just seeing your goodness and just like responding well to you with that. So yeah, we need you for that. And I pray we'll respond. Amen.